0: We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community.
1: We met Rob and Ross at Rebuild. Great teachers. Yeah, they just kept teaching us how to do all sorts of things: Um, concreting, plastering, uh, carpentry skills, how to cut wood, how to measure, how to draft, how to draw. Um, The biggest one they uh, told us was um, planning. Everything always starts with a plan, no matter what it is. And they weren't just teaching us skills; Uh, they're also teaching us how to be a good person. They weren't teachers of curriculum but they were teachers of people too. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times mate.
2: That's a really good point that you make because this is what this podcast is about is giving out a sight. You're, you're going to you're gonna do things that are compromised maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals
0: that I was brought up having. Um,
1: my focus is just Focusing on what I'm gonna do when I get out.
2: And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of that mm. goes on in the prison.
0: Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with Mick Cronin. <laughs> Mick Cronin. Mac Wilson. How you doing? I'm good yourself. Doing well. Doing well. We're very lucky today to have uh Rowan joining us, who is currently uh, working for rebuild. He
2: is, yes, and um and it's it's a uh, tour time lucky. We've had a couple of goals with this, haven't we? To get into the podcast. But it's uh circumstances that we live in with COVID has um has stopped us, hasn't it? You keep you keep getting uh, you keep popping up on tier one sites.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, so yeah, which we have to do the responsible thing. And I thought today was gonna be a bit crazy because um it's a bit wild out there in Melbourne today. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think um we, we didn't even drive our cars in today. We got blown in by yeah. the wind. So uh so I really appreciate you um sticking with us and uh, and finally making it here because we're really, really uh, looking forward to having a conversation with you.
0: We'll go right back to when we first met, I guess, uh, at, at uh, in the prison.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Rowan was actually, Mick, you'd be happy to hear this, he was part of the Golden Group. The Golden Group? The Golden Group. But you, were you the... Um,
2: facilitator of the golden group?
0: I was the ringleader of the golden group. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that
2: sounds too good, man. But anyway, you know, this golden group that you keep talking so, about, did, how much of an impact did you have on that golden group? Mate, i tell you what, they've got a little bit of... Were they bronze when they started <laughs> and then they turned to silver and then you made them gold?
0: So I better give an explanation <laughs> what the golden group was. The golden group was the very first group uh, in our education program uh, in Ravenhall. We had eight young men. Each one of them came through the Rebuild program and then have uh, have gone off to other businesses. So Rowan was the last one to come into Rebuild um, out of the Golden Group and uh, made it 100% success rate out of that group to come through our program.
2: Oh, so I'm in the presence of uh, royalty, royalty at the moment. So yeah. Absolutely okay. royalty. No, uh, no pressure on you, Rowan. So yeah. Uh, yeah, Mac talks up the Golden Group all the time. So <laughs> no pressure.
0: So... I guess because uh, we haven't seen each other, that was about three years ago. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 where we first met. Um, but we're going to go ev- back even further. <laughs> okay, so uh, you're originally from Melbourne.
1: Yep, originally uh, from Melbourne, born born and raised in Melbourne. What was what was your upbringing like? Upbringing like was good actually. Um, family was a bit strict. Coming from a Asian uh, culture, that I grew up in. Um, Yeah, so it was, we had like, um, I guess uh, you could say a lot of standards in our family. And it was a lot of it was to do with um, just trying to get um, really educated and then getting a good job out of it. And then, yeah, just looking after your family after that. Yeah, Yeah, so my upbringing was pretty strict, Yeah. you, uh, my parents would expect like A grades, B grades, and all that. But everything like if you get anything under than that, then there's a there's an issue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> an issue. Jeez, I
0: wouldn't have done one well in your house. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: And I guess you've been
0: working from a young age. You were saying before.
1: Yeah, I was. Um, I started working when I was at the age of fourteen, when it was uh, the legal age. I worked with my mom first. Uh, she owned a chocolate chicken shop. I worked there. She taught me just just basic customer service, uh, basic uh, kitchen hand work and all that. And she was the one who brought me up with the work ethics I have today. Mm. After that, so I only did that for about three months with mom and then I moved on and got myself a, my own job. And I worked at a um, sandwich place, or Subway, yeah, making sandwiches. And I worked there for about four years in total. And that was throughout high school days. Yeah. I remember getting my first paycheck uh, even though I was earning like six dollars an hour, it was about twenty hours or thirty hours or something within the fortnight, and I was getting I got about seventy or eighty dollars. Flush. <laughs> and I was pretty happy with that. You had arrived. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was really, really looking forward to all the money I was going to earn later yeah. on. Yeah.
2: And your school grades? I take it you, you did well in school as well. Like you were, you were as you were walking, your school grades were you know continually to keep up with the A's.
1: Not too bad. I wouldn't say the A's. Right. Um, But they were good. They were good enough. But the thing is, my time in year 12 and year 11 probably wasn't that great. It was just because there was a bit too much pressure and I wasn't keeping up Mm. with everything. I felt like there was a bit, a lot of pressure then. But then when it came to uni, when I started getting uh, getting into uni, uh, I really enjoyed the subjects. I guess in high school, I didn't really enjoy the subjects there. Yeah, But once I get into university, um, I was looking forward to my nursing and paramedicine I was doing. Um, and it was fun because it was helping people. And that's what I really wanted to do because I did a bit of volunteering before that then too. And so I kind of discovered the healthcare industry. I yeah. just wanted to be um, yeah either a nurse or a paramedic.
2: Oh, it's, a, it's an amazing industry and the people that work in it are, are incredible as well. So you mm-hmm. did a, a double degree. Is that what you went to uni to do?
1: Yeah, that's correct.
2: And then um, talk us through a little bit of that, bit of that. like how, how was that going? How did that go?
1: Yeah, it was going well um, at the start, that is. A bit of crisis happened, probably about close to halfway throughout the um, place, uh, through, through my studies. That was because of my uh, physical health. And I was going through, um, I, I've been diagnosed with lupus, which is an autoimmune disorder, since the age of 12. But it wasn't really severe. It was very, very mild, like as if I didn't notice it at all until I came of age of about 18. And then from 18 years old, um, it started getting worse from there. And every year, it was like an introduction of a new prescribed drug into my system. Because of all these drugs in my system and also fighting the um, autoimmune disorder as well, my body started deteriorating and then uni became very, very difficult and also working part time as well was becoming very difficult too. So it wasn't uh, the lack of time on my hands, Uh, it was more that I couldn't keep up with the workload that I had at the time. Yeah, it just became worse Um, by the time, since 18 years old, by the time I got to about 21 to 22 years old. the amount of drugs, prescribed drugs I was taking was about eight different ones. And then, um, yeah, those were like two to three times a day. So you probably, if you times by three, so that's about 24 tablets a day. Some of it was chemotherapy drugs. Some of it were steroids. Um, there were suppressants and also painkillers as well, just to keep up with all the uh, symptoms I had.
2: That must have knocked you around. Like that, that's, that's
1: heavy. It is, it is, uh, especially if you're going through, if you're taking those drugs for about two years or so. It was just pretty de- debilitating on the body. Mm.
0: Mm.
2: So. How about, we we'll get into this a bit more, but how about the mind? Because here you are, you know, um, doing everything right, going to school, you know, you, get, you go to uni, you, you want to, you know, pursue a great career, you know, in, in mm. nursing and paramedics. And out of your control, your body and your health is letting you down. So the physical aspects of that you just spoke about a little bit about what you needed to do there, but what was it doing to your your kind of mind and your soul because like it, that must have been really difficult
1: to take. It was very difficult. Um, with the mindset I had, uh, it was I guess you could say I was very anxious every time. Uh, every day I woke up was just like, what what's th- today's gonna be like? Uh, am I gonna be able to get up from bed properly? Or how long will it take me to get out from bed? Things like that and also like, I can't keep up with the group of like, cause all my mates, all my friends, they've moved on. They've gone to uni they complete their studies and they found full time work, whereas I'm still studying. And I felt, I know it's not good to compare myself with other people, but I did feel like I was left behind because it was just within my circle of friends where, um, yeah, that was the only thing I could measure at the time. Yeah, um, yeah. so I felt really set back. Um, I felt like I was incompetent in life. And yeah, so I guess depression was around the corner. I wasn't diagnosed with it, but um, I, I'm pretty sure I, w- I went through that. The biggest downfall I had at that time was that because I didn't speak up about it. Uh, and I reckon that was because of my ego, the, just the pride I had uh, about trying to be successful, trying to be good, uh, being ambitious. And I didn't want people to see me as someone who was incapable of that. This, the funny thing was that um, I didn't realise any of that at the time until I went to jail. And then I went to do this course, this program that the clinicians offered. And it was called Making Choices and it was about 100 hours of drug and alcohol therapy and also cognitive behavioural therapy too. And during that time, a clinician pointed out, like just from me talking through the experience I had, she said that, I th- I'm pretty sure you have a problem with how people view you. Yeah, And I didn't believe her at first. I was like, no way. Why would I care about what other people think of me? And then I slept on it for about like two weeks and just thought about it constantly. And I kept reflecting back at the time when I was really, really sick. It's like, you know what? If I spoke up, if I told my doctors that was going, what I was going through, if I told my family and my friends what I was going through, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Maybe I wouldn't have gone to jail. You know, I could have gone through a different avenue and learnt it through a different way but then I went to jail. It's
2: fascinating. Um, it's fascinating self-awareness, but it's, it's, uh, it's also so interesting that you're it on the wrong side of the, of the wall of a prison, isn't it? Yeah, um, that's it. And, I, and what interests me, and I'm sure it's interesting to our listeners at the moment, is if you just listen to this podcast right now, all the way up until you said jail, you wouldn't know what we're really speaking. Of. You're just speaking about something else. But a young person who's you know, facing, you know, illness and so forth. So, you would never have, f- you would never have the feel that at some stage you're going to say, "And it was when I was in jail." Hmm. So, going back then a little bit to where it then all spiraled a little bit out of control for you, or, or you know, you you um, made some, you know, bad decisions at that point. Can you talk us through how that kind of started and, and how it ended up
1: yeah so I guess you could say it all started with uh, lupus, the autoimmune disorder I had because because of the the reason why I was taking all the painkillers was to just suppress the arthritis I was having so I had a lot of joint pain and I had a lot of fatigue and then um, what lupus does with for me because it's different for everybody else. Is that um, when I get a rash on my skin, what happens to it is that it becomes bigger. As if, as long as lupus is still there and being triggered, uh, the rash becomes bigger and bigger, and eventually the rash gets infected. And when that happens, um, it gets infected to a point where it starts opening up in the skin, and then they become ulcers, ulcers on the skin, and so. Uh, the ulcers can expand, like get really big and my body wasn't, didn't have enough strength to fight it back because the drugs I was taking, they were chemotherapy drugs and they were suppressing my immune system to stop it from fighting, back, uh, fighting off bacteria. So it was your typical bacteria that lives on your skin and I couldn't fight that back. And so the ulcer got worse and it started hurting a lot. So they prescribed me with really heavy, heavy painkillers for that. Um and these painkillers long term weren't great for you because you become very um become very constipated yeah and then eventually I started having irregular bowel movements and bladder problems and I eventually became incontinent because of the long term use of the pre- uh, prescribed drugs I had um from there uh, there was a lot of pain when I urinated too and then. When that happened i I was almost bedbound pretty much, and it was I struggled to get up from bed every day so because of my physical health deteriorating at the time, I couldn't study anymore. Um, I failed a lot of subjects within with like within the span of like about two years because um, I did study for about two two years, and that was fine, but then the course was supposed to be finished in four years, but I failed another two years on top of that. So I would have finished already, but I kept failing the subjects just because I couldn't keep up with the workload. Um, And then because of my uh, constant failure of my uh, subjects, the school was about to expel me because they didn't take failure as lightly. And so that triggered me. That made me really, like, upset about that. The fact that it took me 20 minutes to get out of bed every morning as well and takes me like, and I can't sleep as well at night. Um, And I had to rely on the drugs to put me to sleep basically. Yeah. So when all of that came all all added together, the pain just kept on compounding mentally, physically. And then um, it came to a point where look, I'm not getting anywhere in my life. And to me, Getting nowhere in my life, it's, it's a big deal for me because I had standards on my own and I had a goal on my own, but I wasn't achieving it. I wasn't get, getting to the point where I wanted to go. And so I thought to myself, hey, the best way to make money from home in my bed was probably to get on um, my phone and gamble and then try to become a professional gambler. I was being very optimistic in the wrong ways. <laughs> Mm -hmm. at the time i gambled away all my savings i had just be mindful that i was working since i was age of 14 i was earning yeah at the age of 14 i was earning six dollars an hour and then it went up as i aged but at the time i was saving all my money um i paid for all my school fees my unit fees all my books i paid for my own car my petrol all the needs i needed just to get through, like, um, university and stuff. And all of that was just gone in three days, pretty much, yeah.
2: Three days, and what kind of gambling was that? Like, what were you you playing, like, online, what was it? I was doing horse racing. Horse racing.
1: There was no formula or anything to that. No. No. That was purely just gambling. Yeah. And I don't know if you can be a professional gambler with horse racing, to be honest. (laughs) Unless you had a lot of money. Well, I'm yeah. Irish.
2: There's a lot of people in Ireland that actually probably maybe disagree with that one, but no, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one as well. So, yeah. So, yeah. So when did it? When did it? When did it like take the next turn? Like when did it, like where did the gambling lead to? And
1: yeah. So after um, losing all my money, that was when I think I was rock bottom. By then, um, I was very very vulnerable. Surprisingly, a week later, I got asked to do a job and that involved drug trafficking, but as a mule. So I was just pretty much bringing um, one thing from A to B, and that was it, and I was getting paid for doing that. That was something I could handle because it wasn't too demanding on the physical health and mentally either. It was just driving from one side to the other, and then just, yeah, receiving money at the end of the other side,
0: So when you were doing that was, I'm um, assuming like that wasn't a part of your life up until this point. No. Um, how did that feel? Were you, what, were you, what were the feelings that you were going through when you were doing that?
1: At the time, I think uh, because, because of how I lost all my money and how life was like getting pretty uh, disastrous for me, yeah. I didn't think much of it. I didn't think of what, what I was doing. I wasn't thinking of the consequences I was doing. I was just wanted to get paid. Mm. I just wanted the money, needed the money, yeah, because with the ulcers I was having on my uh body, I was uh paying about eighty dollars a day just to get the bandage on and off and redressed every single day and eighty dollars a day is quite a fair bit for someone like me, like a student, or yeah, yeah for most people, yeah. Absolutely, and yeah, didn't have the capacity to pay for it, and I like I had like that uh, ego where I didn't want to speak up and tell anyone about my problems, so I never asked my family for help. They did help in some ways, but I I could have asked them for more.
2: Did you feel that because that's who you are? Was it is it is it culturally as well? Like is it just? It seems like it's a lot about pride with you as well.
1: Yes, definitely. It was definitely. Uh, a lot of pride involved in my uh in my life. Um I just never I never wanted to seem as weak. And yeah, I wanted to be someone who was competent, who who was uh be able to self sustain his own life. You know. Um I guess you could say try to be the man.
2: From the outside looking in. Yeah, look if you can think back then, yeah. Yep. You probably saw yourself one way. Mhm. Has anyone ever told you that, like recently, like now we saw you this way? Like, was it obvious to people that you were struggling, or were you just really keeping away and keeping it uh, under, you know, keeping a lid on it so people couldn't get at you and or realize how how far it had gone and where you were at?
1: Yeah, I kept a lid on it. My family, uh, my mom and my brother, uh, they saw how bad I was. They didn't push me to do anything because they saw the how bad my health was. Um, but the thing is, I never told them how bad I was, what I was going through, like the pain and stuff like that. Um, every time I took my medication, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be in front of them at all. Um, and also with the doctors, uh, sure they noticed all the ulcers and all the rashes on my body and I was telling them about my, uh, joint pains and all that. But then I never told them about my mental state. And, but at the same time, they never asked about my mental state either, as well with that. Um, and with my mates, I'll just see them once every month or something, and they think I'm fine.
2: You know? I can only imagine. You, you painted a picture of what life could be, in it, but I still couldn't imagine like, what you were going through there. When you were doing, um, when you were being at, like a drug mule and stuff like that, was the gambling still happening? No, you just realised you're a really bad gambler and said, "I'm not going to do that anymore." Is that what, that that actually went away? So it was just then you were solely just being a drug mule, um, and then using that money to you know pay for your medications and all your treatments that you needed.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Where did it come unstuck?
1: It's yeah, basically when I went to jail is when everything just stopped. Um, the 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 fact that I was doing the drug mule itself. Um, I guess I wanted, I wasn't really into it anyway to begin with. I was pretty much a hypocrite because I was studying nursing and paramedicine, and yet here we are, dealing drugs to the community, and that was, yeah, I just couldn't fathom that at all. I just didn't understand that what what I was doing at the time. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it was really bad. It's, it's interesting, th- isn't it? Because you can yeah. think
2: you you had ambitions to be driving around in an ambulance with certain <laughs> medications, you know, doing certain work, and then you, you, you're, you're driving around with illegal medications and illegal drugs doing yeah. the complete opposite. That's a really fa- – what you've just said there is, is really interesting.
1: Yeah, and I think I was just full-on on survival mode. Yeah, it's just I wanted to just get through this, yeah. Um, and at the time – that was the only solution I had. And that was the only option I had. I didn't know that there was so much help out there. Yeah. You uh, know, and yeah, help to me, um, help wasn't uh I wasn't aware of it at all. I thought everyone out there was uh a competition. You know, in life it, everyone was pretty much a competition. That's how I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, biggest downfall I have.
0: Okay. <laughs> So from I guess, from your first run to getting caught, what was the time frame that you were doing this? Probably lasted
1: about four months, six months okay, and then that was pretty much it. Just got arrested by yeah a lot of undercover people, yeah, yeah, it was pretty traumatic, I guess um I just remember there were so many people around me at the time when I was arrested, and then the weight of the handcuffs that was on bound to me as well and how cold they were as well. And I was just my whole world sank. It felt really fast now that I think about it right now. Like how how all of that all how everything, how my house got raided, how I got arrested, interrogated through that, um, and then finally into a jail cell. Can't believe all of that just happened in less than a day. It was very, very overwhelming.
0: Yeah. The, I guess the severity of what you're looking at would, would have sunk in pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, it did. Because I even asked the detective, how long am I looking at? And then he asked me how much I had. I told him, and then he said, you're looking at about 25 years. Yeah, then when I heard 25 years, I counted my age. I was 23 at the time. So I would have been out when I was 48. I don't know what I was thinking then.
2: Mm. It would have been frightening.
1: It was. It was very frightening. And I believed him because this was the first time I was in this world. And I've never really became part of this world, so I don't know anything about it at all. So, yeah, I believed him. And then until later on, um, when I was finally in my jail cell, um, a lawyer came to me. I didn't know where he came from, like why he came to me. I didn't know my rights or anything as well, like that. But apparently my brother hired him, and I was like, oh, wow, what, what happened, <laughs> you know? Mm. it was I was surprised, because I thought I was left for dead, pretty much. With my mindset at the time, I thought that my family would have abandoned me, then, but I was completely wrong. They full supported me all throughout my um, remand period, and paid for the lawyers, and got everything set uh, set out for me as much as they could, yeah, to the best of their abilities. And, yeah, I was just – that was the big difference. Like, that was an eye-opening for me.
2: Because you, you'd you be right to think that they mightn't. Like, whatever – because you've, you've, it seems like you've had this in your mind through your life that that's the expectation of what was going to happen there. And that's why it's really it, – it is ironic. You've used that word, isn't it? In some ways, this could have happened a lot earlier – Mm. with you and your family in conversations (laughs) and it might have it might have or might not have but it might have actually um had a different result to what you actually thought might have happened yeah because it showed they showed in that time when you needed the most that they were there with unconditional love that's it and support and that unconditional love and support was always there
1: yeah
2: and that's another really interesting part that obviously you would have reflected on in prison and so forth as well and and that so, how long was the period that you were in remand um, to court and so forth? Talk us through that a little bit to when you get your sentence.
1: So since the day of my arrest, it took about uh, a total of seven months of remand until I was finally sentenced. Um, and it was a very very long seven months because every day you just wake up, what's what's going to happen? As a lawyer, is the lawyer going to speak to me today? is there any news or what's going on and also the fact that jail was brand new to me as well and living in a cell with another person who's either off the streets straight away and complete different people like type of people I've ever met in my life like I'm not used to uh, (laughs) these uh, people who, who go to jail um Yeah, I've just never really encountered anyone like that ever before. And yeah, just trying to understand them and trying to um, just work with them because you have to work with them uh, because you're just stuck in a cell with them the whole time. And you also live with the majority of them around there too. Um, So yeah, that seven months was pretty hectic. But until I got sentenced, um, it started getting a lot easier because I knew how much time I had left and I knew I wasn't there forever. Mm. It was just a temporary thing, yeah. Mm.
0: That's, that's remand is a, is, a, is a melting pot of yeah. emotions um, for a lot of, a lot of young men. Um, just purely that, as you said before, not knowing. I think we get kind of anxious day-to-day lives not knowing things, you know. That's, Looking at the prison, there's maybe 200 people in the remand Two hundred people not knowing their fate for That's long it. periods of time. Yeah, you know it just heightens everything. It so heightens people's emotions, uh, expectations. Yeah, you start to you start to tell a story in your head that you don't know it's going to be true or not. That's right. You know, from my experience working with you know a lot of young guys in there, it makes uh, makes it very difficult day to day. And you can see once people get sentenced and put into a into a sentenced yard that things become a lot more not, not relaxed but uh, easier to do your time.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, if you lived in the jail system like from remand to sentence, you can I guess you could say it's more relaxed in the sentence section compared to remand. So yeah. remand is just constantly just changing. Every day is different. Yeah. Uh, the amount of people that come in and mm. go as well in remand whereas sentence is a bit more stable. Mm. So you know who's doing long time you know who's doing the short time. So usually you go with someone who's doing the same amount of time as you. Like uh, you buddy up with that person. Yeah, because you know that they're not going to leave anytime soon in the next month or so. Yeah, Um, yeah.
2: I'm really interested just to see where your mind is at with this and just get a really like honest insight. You mentioned (laughs) when you said like that you were in prison and then you're with people that go to prison. You are one of them people. Yes, yes, Yeah, you are one of these people. But in some ways, did you? Did it take you time to realize? In prison, it doesn't matter what you are, what you do, what you are the same. You're, it's a level playing mm, field. It, yeah. Yeah. Did it take you time to comprehend, and maybe even to this day? This is what I'm trying to find out. Do you think this way? Did, was there a point where you didn't see yourself as everyone else uh, in the prison? Like I'm not like these people. I don't. I. I shouldn't be here. And then was there a point where you go, No, I. I accept what I've done, and I am here, and I need to now realise that this is the level playing field, and I have to be on a level with these people, and I can't see them as
1: different to me in some sense. Does that make sense? Is that yes, fair to say? Yes. Yes. Um yes you're right so I had different stages when I, uh, of how I saw things uh, during my time in jail um, I guess majority of the mariman if not all of it I thought that I didn't deserve to be there because um, I believe that I just it was because of lupus my autoimmune disorder is what got me in there and it wasn't fair you know that's how I saw it and then, um, then when I got sentenced and I got my time, I started hanging around, like, from remand to sentence. You find a lot more uh, people who are quite similar to me because you've just been longer in the jail and you can just see uh, more of it. And I've been to different, a lot of different jails too. i moved around heaps. Um, and I found people who are very similar to my situation sort of like-minded as well um and yeah they've they've already been in jail for a few few years already whereas i'm just starting off as well but they they were pretty much my coaches and like my mentors in in jail and they're like no nah, you, you did that's what you, that was your choice you know that wasn't something that happened to you like you're, you're an adult you can make your own choices Um, and this was the choice you made sure like um, lupus and the drugs and failing school and stuff might have been a factor in um, you making that choice but you still made that choice and so you have to take the responsibility of the choices you make and you got to own it whether it's a bad choice whether it's a mistake or it's a good choice you still have to own it and then from there on you don't you don't want to fall back on it. You want to fall forward and move on. Uh, not move on, but move forward from it. So, yeah, obviously it didn't take one day for me to realize that. It took me like months and months of just repeating and just trying to get my um, mind around it and accepting it because I did blame lupus for a very long time. And it wasn't lupus that made, got me into jail. It was actually myself, my own choice that made me get into jail. I always thought that what I regretted the most was not being um wise enough to know that there are other options out there. Not because I was so stuck in my small world of yeah, get your studies, um, uh finish your studies, get work and then get a job, get a house and that's it. Yeah. Um that that was my world. But now that I think about it, if only I diversified my world a bit more, like go out to different worlds and um, hear other people's opinion, their life, and everything like that, then I would have um, equ- uh, changed my mindset, you know, and I probably wouldn't have made that choice because I knew that There were I would have knew that there was other options out there instead of going on being a drug mule. Yeah, you know, if I so- seeked help from a psychologist or something like that. Um, that Probably would have helped me change my course of action. Mm.
2: Easy to say, it's yeah. easy to say. <laughs> hindsight, you know, hindsight yeah. always, and um, yeah, better. Rowan is always <laughs> there, but like there's also massive factors. It's interesting that you got to that point. And I, I'm, I think it's yeah, saying that it's not lupus, it's not that it is a massive factor. And you're obviously on a lot of you know different medications as well, so it's, it's not a clean mind you're, you're, you're moving around with there, mm. you know, Mick. Mac, what's on your mind?
0: Uh, my wife's furious at me. Again? Yeah, again. What have you done this time? Uh, we don't have a chopping board, this is the thing. Right. So I'm just straight on the counter.
2: On your marble, on your good marble, your Italian marble.
0: Marble, granite, <laughs> not sure yet. <laughs> but i tell you what, i am making it a complete mess. Well, you know what?
2: What's that? I can, I'm the answer to all your problems. You have been so far. And I tell you, it's not going to stop here. We have an amazing range of chopping boards. We have um, cheese boards, chopping boards, different sizes that will fit that marble countertop that you are so badly destroying at the moment. You're going to save my marriage. I am going to save your marriage yet again. And here's the thing. These chopping boards, if you go to our website, www.ymcarebuild.org.au, anyone can buy them. And here's the kicker. If we sell seven chopping boards per week, we create one job for a young person. Seven chopping boards. Nothing. But the impact massive. So if you're like you, Mac, and you're destroying countertops and your marriages is on the line
0: because you haven't got a chopping board, well, I tell you, rebuild. That's where you get it. You know what? We do a lot more than just help young people in the justice system. I'd like to think so. We're helping relationships. Screw Dr. Phil. <laughs>
2: Just, just with the prison um, and so forth. How long did you spend in? In how long did you then end up serving? And what was the key things that got you through there? Like, well, how did you keep busy in the prison and make that time? You know, um, go as best as it could for you.
1: Yeah. So, I I think that when I asked the detective how long I was going to get, uh, yeah, I think he was doing that intentionally. Just to scare me as much as he could, so he could get more information out of me, or something like that. Um, my lawyer told me I'll probably be looking at nine years, on the uh, as non-parole period. But then when I got sentenced, I end up doing four years incarcerated, and then I'll be doing two and a half years of parole. So a total of six and a half years uh, of jail of jail time, basically. So um, yeah, I was pretty happy with that yeah <laughs> you know, over the 25 years or the nine years i was supposed to get
2: yeah it's crazy though isn't it like it's four years like straight your face and like straight down the barrel of four years in prison you've just done what seven months in remand and and so forth and you're, you're facing that as well like um yeah might be a silly question to people but wouldn't they be interested in like how quick did the time go where was the where was the periods of time when it went quicker than others and where did it kind of drag and what were the reasons for that
1: the looking back now, um, it was a long time but it wasn't too long at the same time. Uh but during the time the longest period of um jail was the seven months I had in Ramad. Um but then once I got sentenced and I moved to a different jail, I met the people I liked to hang out around with and they made my time easier because jail can be hard or easy depending on how you look at it and, yeah, pretty much how you see it and and the fact that you're around the right people as well. So when you're around the right people, time will go by faster. Um, So time pretty much went faster when I got to Ravenhall because there were so many opportunities there. Um, It wasn't just go to work and that was it and then just cook dinner and all that it was uh ravenhall had education they had uh programs like the rebuild itself that um my time in there went by real fast because of rebuild because you're just learning something new every single day you know and the teachers are great there too um yeah and then there was also sports and rec as well like you could just join up with the team um you could do all sorts of things and there was like a proper gym and there was people there that could actually coach you and teach you how to do workouts and stuff like that and so it's the learning part was what I was really interested in because I wanted to change and I knew the best way to change is to educate myself and just keep building up knowledge so basically self-development because jail itself is also very limited to what you can do um I just pretty much took Uh, the opportunity of what was there for me and a lot of it was with rebuild just carpentry skills concrete plastery all sorts of handyman work and then also drawings and drafting as well Um, the other one was gymming so sport and rec teaching us about the physical part of our bodies our health and all that Um, and the other one was uh, working as well Uh, I was working as a peer supporter at the jail so I had to meet a lot of different personalities while I was in there and that got really interesting because I wanted to know their stories and I kind of reflect their stories with my own story as well because it's like, yeah, you know what? Everyone's not here for the wrong reasons, like in jail. They're here because they needed to survive. You know, they they probably, most of them probably didn't grow up with parents. Um, a lot of them grew up in the streets and so that's all they know. And why do they grew up in the street, uh, why they're in jail, it's only for them to survive. You know? And I've had a lot of, uh, I guess, both empathy and sympathy for, for the people who do come to jail because that's all they know in that world. If they had the opportunities of education and all that um, and the skills and pretty much the tools in life, then they probably that probably the last place they'll be looking at to go to. So I started off uh, wanting to help people, went to uni to do nursing and paramedicine to help people. But then I saw like a different side of things, you know. Even though I can't go back to the job I wanted to because of my criminal record, there's other avenues I can still take to help people in the community, and I reckon, well because of jail but i reckon young men uh are the best people to help out right now yeah that's that's the plan for the future at the moment
2: (laughs) it's a good plan and you know what i can you can definitely see you in that you know you can you've obviously had a lot of life experience probably a lot more than you should have you know across so much as well and before we get on to how it all kind of moved into where a rebuild and, and, and came and leave in prison just really quickly. How did your health go in prison? Just really fa- fascinated to know, like how did you manage your health in prison? Cause it was pretty difficult on the outside. So yeah. how, how was that when you were in prison?
1: So the funny thing is that, um, the one thing I learned about lupus was that you just got to stay away from triggers. And I didn't know my triggers. I didn't know the fact that you had to stay away from uh, triggers at all for lupus. So um, for example, if you have asthma, hay fever would be pretty detrimental to you. So you stay away from any pollens or anything like that. So you stay indoors, yeah, that's a trigger. For lupus, it's uh, all sorts of things, and it varies for every person who has lupus. What I learned for myself is that um, seafood and uh, GMO products, so genetically modified organisms, they have an impact on my um, lupus and it triggers it. So when I was sick, I was eating a lot of seafood because I assumed it was healthy <laughs> because it was uh, like a lean meat, low fat, you know, it was good fats, stuff like that, so I just kept eating it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was a po- it was poison to my body. <laughs> Wow. So you, yeah. I guess you could t- treat it like almost like an allergic reaction, but um, it doesn't happen instantly. It's just like a a build up over time, over time. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. And the seafood's
0: m- pretty hard to come by in prison. Yep. though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <up, laughs> wait. Friday night fish and chips though. You'd have, probably have to stay away from that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know at the time. But it was only once a week, whereas on the outside I was eating it daily, daily. three times a day, if anything. And so once a week wasn't enough to pretty much trigger my lupus that bad. You know. It was still there, but it wasn't that bad. Um, I also wasn't given my medication for about, I can't remember how many days, but it was enough for me to go cold turkey. Um, yeah, so I, wasn't given all, given, I was given, given some of my medication, but not all of it, because they didn't believe me, um, until the, finally the medical records came to them. But then when I went cold turkey on it, I was like, I felt better. Yeah, It was like as if I didn't need the drugs at all. And so um, I started staying with the drugs I knew that was helping. And then I slowly took them off as time went by. And then to this day, I'm on two drugs, two medication, versus the eight medications I was on previously. And the two medications I'm on right now are very mild, as in they're like Panadol, basically. So, there is almost no side effect on it at all. So, yeah, come a very long way. So, jail itself was like a blessing in disguise to me. Wow. It's...
2: Yeah, we've heard that in different ways about how it works on someone's life when they go, I needed to go there for different reasons because I was out of control or, mm. I, you know, I was really badly drug in, um, dependent or, or, or whatever it was. <coughs> Yours is just so interesting that, you know, you got lupus, became under control in prison because you were removed from daily things or, or your lifestyle as yeah. it was. And slowly you got to kind of figure out that what you were putting into your body wasn't necessarily needed anymore
0: yeah. to help your body. And yeah. there was other ways that you could strengthen and help your body as well. Yeah. So and it's crazy to think like, what if you didn't go to jail and you were still taking eight pills? Like mm, what, would, yeah. what, what situation would your body be in at the moment?
1: Well, because I was incontinent and urinating was pretty painful, yeah. I saw myself not living past 30. That's how I saw myself. Yeah. And that's why I was in a rush to make money as well. Yeah time. Yeah. I'll at least leave if something for my family. That's what I was thinking.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> like just hearing all that, it's
2: It's a great it's question that you posed, posed there. Like it is like what would it have been if you didn't the only thing that might have helped, which we've touched on and you've touched on lots, is whether or not your ability to ask for help mm. at some stage would have kicked in mm. um, and it mightn't have been in time, you know? Um Yeah.
0: And You know, like how you threw yourself into education and and looking after your health in prison. Just upon reflection, you know, before even sitting down with you today and I was thinking of all the interactions we had uh, inside prison, I'm thinking about the ones that, you know, where we just ran into each other kind of, Mm,
1: mm -mm.
0: you know, uh, as you do. And it was either you coming out of the library Mm. or the education centre or you coming out of the gym. (laughs) <laughs> so i can't i can't picture i can't picture having like running into you in any any other part <laughs> yeah so much yeah and i know like for our sports and rec staff you were very well known down there yeah um i guess because how frequently you were down there <laughs> with uh, your
1: structured workouts yeah um keeping busy I, uh, also helps uh, yeah. with time like mm. uh, let time pass and stuff yeah i i was very interested in all the programs because mm. Yeah, I wanted to learn more about the body. I wanted to learn more about like my health as well. So uh, throughout prison, I was focusing a lot about my health and just studying uh, almost every day, just figuring out well, what's going on, you know, why? how did my health fail before and why is it okay now? Yeah. You know, And then how can I make it better from now? Because I don't think I've ever felt good. I don't know what good feels like. You know, I don't know what healthy feels like until, yeah, until you actually feel it. Because mm. I was always feeling crappy throughout my life. Because um, I haven't noticed it in my teens, because I thought that's how you normally feel. But I was very tired all the time, like fatigued. And, um, and I had a s- bit of joint pain here and there, but I thought that was just, I don't know, just normal way of growing up or something yeah. like that. So I didn't know any better until I actually felt better just focusing on my health and um yeah just eating the right things getting the right routine sleeping at the right times and stuff like that so it's it's pretty eye-opening yeah
2: mm. so tell us how you then you know got connected to to rebuild and um, obviously you mentioned doing the program in Ravenhall. and um, you were doing the rebuild program in there which didn't in the workshop And uh, yeah, how did how did it come to you know becoming a a crew member uh, with Rebuild in the community upon your release?
1: Well, when I it was basically it was at Ravenhall when I think the first encounter with Rebuild was with Damien. Sorry about that. (laughs) We always we always give it to Uh, Damien. This (laughs) one he's a legend,
0: but we always give it to him.
1: Yeah. He, we, um, we saw this person just walking around and he was like in like different uniforms like had a, um, had a company name on his um, high vis or his uh, top and in, in prison we only see officers, and then with the teachers they were casual but he was in like working clothes basically but we did take notice of him and then eventually, eventually word got around Yeah, we didn't know who he was, so I guess guess we went and tried to find out. And so, yeah, he spoke to us and he said, oh, it's only under 25 five-year-olds that can do this program where we teach you all sorts of things, take you to a workshop, and we teach you all these skills and upskill you. So we are like, yeah, we'll we'll do it, you know, put put our name forward and stuff like that. And then, yeah, then the program kicked off. Uh, We met Rob and Ross out there uh, at Rebuild. And then great teachers, really chilled blokes. And they love the banters. They love giving the banters. They love the banters on on them as well. And then, um, yeah, from there, we just kept, yeah, they just kept teaching us how to do all sorts of things. Um, but it, yeah, concreting, plastering, uh, carpentry skills, how to cut wood, how to measure, how to draft, how to draw. And um, the biggest one they plan, uh, told us was um, planning. Everything always starts with a plan, no matter what it is. And they weren't just teaching us skills, uh, they're also teaching us how to be people, how to be uh, a good person, like a human being and stuff as well. So they weren't teachers of curriculum, but they were teachers of people too, which I really, really admire as well. And yeah, once I um, once I got out of jail, uh, I came to rebuild because I knew that it was a place of education. Yeah, it was a place of not only upskilling people but also teaching people like values, beliefs, yeah, morals, and then just how to work hard as well, reality of things mm. in life. So, yeah, and I'm glad to be with Rebuild right now.
2: Did you ever think you'd see yourself uh, working for a commercial maintenance business, doing uh, landscaping, yep. and garden, and all that? That probably wasn't uh, something, even in prison, you probably wouldn't have taught at stages that would have been a career pathway for you?
1: No, nah, not at all. I thought that I was going to become a social worker straight away mm. as I got out. But there was a lot of uh, obstacles to becoming a social worker because of my criminal record. However, um, Rebuild is pretty much like a social work as well. Uh, well, it is a social enterprise. But um, their main job, their focus is um, construction or maintenance, landscaping. Um, but also to teach the blokes that come out of jail. And so I, I got into it. And then, now that uh, I've been with Reba for a while now, uh, I want to take the position of a senior crew member where I can relate to the guys that come, uh, the new guys that come in, and then just work with them. So, in order to become the social worker I want to be, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yep. And I found the perfect place to start from. It's
2: great to hear. And it's such important what you just said because. We say this all the time. You can teach people trade skills and gardening and and painting and everything that we do, but y- you know, to have them to have the ability to listen and to support and just give some options and a little bit of advice and kind of go oh, like I've been here, but like, m- maybe think about doing it this way, or you know, how you know, just how you going in the day. Hmm. That is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I believe that rebuild does, mm-hmm. um, and why it's you know success is, and why you know it's why people love working for it, why we love doing the work that we do is because of that. So it's it's great to hear that, and I can I can see you in that role, and I can see you know the impact that you would have as well. So, mm-hmm. um, what's your what's the future look like? Because obviously you know you are you rebuild, and we love keeping you here, but uh, <laughs> but like we're also what are, what it's about is is creating a, a really safe, welcoming environment where people can kind of find themselves, can, you know, walk and then can, you know, if they need to take that next step, whether that's still with us and moving up, that's great, or whether it's they have ambitions to go and, you know, study again or go and work in a different industry. Where's your kind of header at the moment with your kind of future?
1: At the moment, my focus is uh, basically self-development and um, I did as much as I could while I was incarcerated just for the self-development part. Um, then I got out here and I needed to focus a bit more on, on it because my future, I reckon, is um, looking after the community. And uh, I think my target audience is probably helping out uh, young, young kids that don't have opportunities. At the moment, I'm going to stick with Rebuild for that self-development. I plan to move to a full-time job in the civil construction industry. Um, there, I plan to work for a bit, um, try to move up uh, from, like, just being a general labourer towards, uh, like, a higher position, uh, maybe a manager or something. Uh, and the goal was probably to become a safety officer, too. And just just to understand and how to deal with people. You know, that's, that's pretty much, like, my progress to be for self-development as well because I believe that if I do want to work with kids in the future, I need a lot of wisdom and I need a lot of knowledge on how to interact with all sorts of different personalities because one person could take something a bit too serious or a bit more sensitive than the other person. So I just need to know how to work my way around people like that. But at the moment, I'll move on to civil construction uh, as the short term just to build up some capital, uh, just to establish my own foundation because I've got to look after myself before I can look after people mm. is what I think. Because uh, if I don't look after myself, I won't have the capacity to look after yeah. other people. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned, it's interesting you say, you know, you want to have more wisdom and, and you mentioned self-reflection. Just by listening to you for whatever time you spoke about, I can tell you you have both of them. In a lot of it, you have been more than self reflective the whole way through this interview. You are very in touch with where you're at, where you've been, and where you want to go, and the influence that you can have. So, that's really clear to myself and Mark. Just listen to you like, not many people have that. You know, you've you understand yourself, Mm -hmm. and I think it's because of what you've been through, Mm -hmm. and you've been through so much of it, and it's diverse, and it's gone through crazy pathways that you've had to learn a lot. And you can, you know, you're still going to learn. Everyone keeps learning about themselves, but you seem to have a good grasp on it. And wisdom, I think you have a good grasp on that one. I think you're, I think you're a very wise man. Um so, mm. I think that whatever you choose to do, whatever pathway you choose to go into, whatever company you choose to work for, you know, they're gonna be lucky to have you.
1: Yeah. Because I exactly. think you know <laughs> you're
2: only getting going, um, and I, you know, be really interested in and to see where this all ends up for you. Because I, I think it's. It's going to be great things.
1: Mm. Yeah, thank you.
0: I'm actually sitting here worried about my job at the moment. Well, you should Do sit. It. Every day you sit there,
2: you should worry about your job, Mac. <laughs> or you wake up in the morning worried about your job. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I well, got a pretty job. But, um, So, how's everything these days with your family?
1: Everything with my family right now is great. Probably better than ever. Um, it's... It's like uh, jail's kind of brought, like me being in jail has kind of brought them closer to me, and not only them but also my friends as well, because they, uh, obviously everyone's going to find out that I went to jail, and I have to just be completely honest about it. Cause, yeah, and yeah, my my friends a lot closer than ever, uh, and my family is a lot closer than ever, and we do like a thing with my circle of friends where we just kind of. Um, monthly basis, just check up on everyone, invite everyone together as a group and then ask how we're going. Yeah. During the COVID times, it's difficult, but we have our Zoom calls together, like a Zoom party or something. So, um, yeah, things are great. We we all look after each other now. Um, and yeah, we're just going to try to get on with life as well at the same time as looking after each other.
2: Before we go, um, I asked this question to everyone. Um, so when you were... Younger, when you were a kid or whatever, fire package, you can go back. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I think I was, uh, wanted to be an engineer um, because my brother was an engineer or is an engineer right now. So I think that was pretty much it. But then I was never good at maths. I was horrible, with <laughs> it. if anything. <laughs> yeah, so I never made it through math, So I was like, nah, probably, probably not best for me. Even though uh, maths was kind of forced upon me <laughs> to do it all the time. Just, um, yeah, just the standards that my family had put on me. Just maths is always yeah. the, the key thing. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm happy. At the moment, like, life itself, it's it's a lot different than you think it is when you are a kid because you're very optimistic. And uh, as a kid, like, you don't know how life pushes you around and like what reality is until you get to a certain age or like probably not even a certain age until you just experience life itself then you realize like oh crap it takes a lot of effort to become an astronaut or like an engineer you know it's not that simple you know and also circumstances too it's a big player too um i guess not everyone has the resources growing up to become what they want to become as well so that's something you gotta. Uh, that I have to. Yeah, people just gotta be mindful about as well. Mm-hmm. But the one thing um, I learned the most, and it was like a, it was a quote from one of the um, speakers that came to Ravenhall, uh, Stan the man. He said that um, there are two types of people in this world. Uh, though there are those who create their own opportunities. There are those who wait for the opportunity to come to them. I prefer to be the one who creates their own opportunities in life because you don't have a lot of time in life, to be honest. Um, when you start working full-time, you just, you're just you in your 20s or you're in your 30s and you wake up one morning and you're in your 40s. That's how I feel right now. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, well, wow, God. I'm gonna be waking up someday, maybe fifties. Don't do that. But um yeah, it's really like, really great way to finish. Um as well. Thank you so much for your time. Um it's been an absolute pleasure talking mm. to you. It's been extremely educational. Um I know me and Mark would have learnt lots today around and just how honest you were, um and informative you were about, you know, what you've been through and and you know, lupus and everything else. It's it's uh, I hope the listeners will enjoy it as much as we did Mm. um, speaking to you. So Mm. thanks again for everything that you're doing for Rebuild and thanks again for being part of Time to Rebuild. Mm.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Glad
1: to be here. Thanks, mate.
0: If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.